other day I was sitting at a stoplight and at the intersection on the side of the street there was a man sitting there, uh, had a lot of his possessions with him, he appeared to be homeless and I thought to myself, I wonder what his story is. I wonder how he got here. I wonder what his life used to be like. Did he have a family somewhere? Uh, was he in a different circumstance? Was there a time in his life when it, when it didn't look like this? Right. And if so, what were the events, what was the sequence of events that led him to this point? I just wondered, what's his story? And I realized that we all have a story. We all have, uh, we all came from somewhere. We all have a list of experiences, good and bad, in our background. We all see the world through the lens of our experiences. We all have a story. We all came from somewhere. We all even make judgments about the world and about other people and how they live on the basis of what seems right to us in the light of our own personal story. And, and no two people have the same story. Your story is really the basis for what you're passionate about. That's a ba the basis for what you embrace and what you reject in life. It's the basis for what you consider to be right and consider to be wrong. Your story is the context for your convictions. It's the basis for your attitudes. It's the basis for your actions. Some people live with a sense that their story, their personal story, is insignificant. Some people, on the other hand, live with the sense that their personal story is, is overly significant, kind of an inflated sense of self-importance. Some people live with a pattern of comparing their story to the story of other people in order to feel more important, in order to elevate themselves. And some people uh, make comparisons in order to justify the self-pity they have to actually lower themselves. Ephesians chapter 2 tells the story of us all. It's, it's relevant to all of our individual stories. In it, we discover that our individual stories are actually more precious in the light of God's big story, God's overarching narrative of reconciliation, how he's restoring all things. All of us who have received Christ have the opportunity to understand today, through Ephesians chapter 2, the story of God's love for us as individuals and as a collective, humanity, we have the opportunity today to understand that in a deeper and more compelling way. So if you've got your Bible handy, uh, I hope you have a paper Bible. I just want to keep encouraging you to use that because we're going to make some notes. Some things might jump out at you. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. You can flip over there. I'm going to start reading in Ephesians 2 verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath." Now, the chapter starts out with uh, what you might consider to be some pretty bad news. Uh, it actually has sort of a, a negative bent towards it. And if you don't stick around for the rest of it, uh, it's, it's pretty religious sounding, to be honest, pretty discouraging stuff. So, so uh, let's take it all in context. So let's just start right here. Uh, keep in mind that Paul's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, not to an individual, but to all the Christians. 
the entire church. So when he says, you, the word you, Y-O-U, what he means is, you, the reader, or the person hearing this letter read aloud, you were dead in your sin. You, the reader, the person hearing it read aloud. Who's he talking to? You, the reader, or the person hearing it read aloud. Me, the reader. You were dead in your sin. That doesn't sound like great news, uh, but this is where we kind of get a little bit kind of wonky, a little crazy with our stories, because at this point, what we tend to do is look at our sin or our failure, our mistakes, our shortcomings, uh, however you want to phrase that, our humanity, our brokenness, and, and we tend to, uh, most of us, make comparisons to try and justify ourselves, to sort of inflate our sense of superiority or importance. Uh, there are people who actually make self-loathing comparisons, but, but they're kind of in the minority. Most of us are trying to actually elevate ourselves or improve the light in which others see us. And so we tend to judge harshly the way other people talk, the way other people think, the way they treat their spouse, the way they raise their kids, the way they dress, the way they dress their children, uh, all kinds of things, how they earn their money, how they spend their money, uh, their political views, their views on race, and sometimes even just their race. We, we formulate judgments about other people in order to elevate ourselves. And then if we're in the rare situation where we can't really look around and find anybody that we compare favorably to, then we just go with some you know, unknown, uh, world-renowned figure, some kind of tyrant who did these horrible atrocities somewhere in order to make ourselves feel better or look better. In general, we're pretty good at judging others in order to shape the view of ourselves that we're looking for. In short, we play the comparison game. We're pretty good at that. But Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, which we just read, what it does is it actually draws a circle around us all. All of us. You know who was dead in their sins? You. Me. All of us lived among them at one time. All of us. He goes on to say, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now, he says all of us lived among them at one time. And the good news about that last phrase, at one time, is that it means something changed or something is going to happen that's going to change the course. So we're going to get to the good news in verses 5 through 8. You'll, you'll have to stick around for that. But, but it says that we, we lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now, when I read that, uh, I read the phrase, gratifying the cravings of the flesh. Um, I don't actually think of myself as being a person who gratifies the cravings of the flesh. Like, it has kind of a sinister, dark, even like barbaric sound to it. Uh, but when I look at other places in the Bible, I can get a better context of it. One of those places might be in the book of Judges. Now, uh, there's this phrase that appears in the book of Judges that really kind of shines a light on what it means to live your life gratifying the cravings of the flesh. There was this period in the history of Israel where, uh, where there wasn't really a ruler. The patriarchs who had, uh, like Moses and his predecessors, uh, of course Joshua came after Moses, uh, their period of time was over, but we hadn't gotten to the period of the kings. And so uh, they had judges, uh, but they just didn't have the same kind of authority. 
And an example of what was happening in those days is found in Judges 17.6. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. And watch what it says. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When we simply go through life just doing whatever we see fit at the moment, whatever is expedient and available to us, this is what it means to follow the cravings of the flesh. Doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. And if you look at that period in Israel's history, what you'll see it was, is it was chaos. It was an absolute mess. Paul says in Ephesians, all of us have lived there, doing whatever seemed right in our own eyes. And then he caps off the bad news at the very end with probably the most terrifying thought imaginable. He says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. By our nature, deserving of wrath. Isn't that interesting? By our nature, uh, that's a big problem. Because it implies that the sin which, which makes us deserving of God's wrath, that separates us from relationship with God, it's not just our behaviors. That sin is actually our nature. That's a lot more problematic because if it was just in our behaviors, theoretically, we could discipline those behaviors out of our life. We could correct them. But, but if it's in our nature, if sin is a part of who we are, if that separation from God is part of what we're, part of who we are from birth, now it's a lot more complicated. Now it's a lot harder to get rid of. So as we read that first section, those first three verses, there's really two things that I just want you to pull out of there. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that you could, but just a couple of things. The first one is what I just said, that sin is in our nature. The sin that makes us deserving of God's wrath is a part of the human condition and no one is exempt from it. All of us have it in our nature. God is perfect. All of us are, by nature, imperfect. Since the slightest imperfection can't be mixed with perfection, all of us are, by nature, in opposition to God. It's a part of who we are. The second thing is that being a a sinner, it doesn't make you bad. It makes you dead. It makes you dead to God. In fact, uh, the fact that we're broken, actually, it doesn't mean we're bad. It means something much worse. The sinful nature that all of humanity has inherited ever since sin first entered the world, uh, it has rendered us all dead to God, the objects of his wrath. Dead is worse than bad. Literally the worst thing that could possibly happen to you in all of the universe is being dead to God, the object of his wrath. But that's what sin does to us. It doesn't get any worse than that. That's what sin has done to all of us. And if all of that does anything for you, the fact that sin is in your nature and the fact that that sin has made you dead to God, has broken off your relationship with God, if that does anything for you, let it do this. Let it point to the fact that you need a Savior, that you need reconciliation to God. Just let it point to that fact. Now that's all Pretty terrifying news, uh, but notice the first word of the next sentence in verse 4. But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace 
you have been saved. Let me just pull out a few key concepts from that really short sentence right there. But God equals God intervenes in the situation. Yes, you were dead to God. Yes, you were the object of God's wrath, but God. But God intervened in that situation. Why did he do it? Because of his great love for us. What is God like? That's a good question. What is God like? It says here that he is rich in mercy. That's what he's like. And then he reverses the problem. The greatest problem that all of us face is sin in our lives. And God reverses the problem. It says he made us alive when we were dead in our sin. And how do we, how do we get that? How am I saved from that condition? By grace. By God's grace. It says next, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Notice we are raised with Christ and given a seat in God's kingdom. Yes, we are unworthy, but for all eternity, okay, now think about this, uh, you're, you're not worthy, we're not deserving, all of us are by nature objects of wrath, we're not deserving of a seat in God's kingdom, but for all eternity, as we are with him, anyone who has received his grace, said yes to Jesus, as we are with him in his heavenly kingdom, for all eternity, our presence will declare how merciful God is forever. This should be a wellspring of gratitude for us. If someday you're in heaven 10,000 years from now and the thought occurs to you, how do I know that God is good? The answer is because I'm here. Because by his grace, through no effort of my own, he invited me in. He raised me up with Christ and seated me in his eternal kingdom. Why did he do it? To show his kindness for all eternity. Lastly, verses 8 and 9 really sum up what has been said in a pretty succinct manner. Verse 8 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, a lot of people are motivated to be good out of fear that uh, somehow God will punish them if they're not, or you know, at least God will not bless their plans if they're not good. Uh, I've thought along those lines before, and I think that's based on the way we relate to each other. I think that's actually a reasonable line of thinking, uh, because we generally uh, formulate our relationships with others or give our approval to others on the basis of how they act. So what I mean by that is if they're polite, we tend to reciprocate by being polite. If they're generous, we tend to reciprocate by being generous. If we have common interest, that can be a connecting point for us. Uh, We generally tend to think that if we uh, act in a way God approves of, then he will bless us. I can understand why people think that way, but to be honest, after reading Ephesians 2, I realize just how small of thinking that is. To think that somehow God will give me his approval on the basis of my own actions rather than giving his approval on the basis of the fact that he 
is kind, that he is gracious. What happens to us when we think like the sin police or you know, moral, ski, ski, moral scorekeepers, sorry, is that we're thinking too small. We think too little of God's grace. God didn't send his son to die for your sin so that you could start trying to be good. That's way too small of thinking. God didn't send his son to die for you so that somehow you could stop acting bad and start acting good. How small is that compared to the glory of God? Christ died because in his great love for you, God, who is rich in mercy, saw fit to bring you from death to life and to raise you up with his son and give you a seat in all eternity that would point to how good and merciful he is. So here's your motivation. It's purely by God's grace that you're made alive. It's not by anything that you do. If it was on the basis of your actions, then you could boast about it, Paul says, as some people are prone to do. It's purely by God's grace. And it comes through faith, not through any type of righteous deeds. If it came by your actions, you'd be right back to the scorekeeping and the comparison again. By grace through faith, and it is the gift of God for anyone who wants to receive it, for anybody who wants to say yes to God's gift of salvation through Christ. And so what that means for us is that we, as we go about our daily lives, we actually live simply in response to what God has already done. Not as a matter of striving and trying to get better and better and please God more and you know, understand and reshape our behaviors in a way that are more pleasing to God, but rather to go deeper and deeper into gratitude for what He has already given us. God doesn't want us to go around through life in our day you know, trying to somehow earn the approval of our Father because we already have His approval through Christ, not on the basis of our own merit. We already have his approval through Christ. So now, in gratitude, we just live like people who are loved by their heavenly Father. We already have his favor. So we live as a response. And this is what it means to have freedom in Christ, to simply live in response to what he has already done.